Welcome to the first episode of Curbside Consult Statistical Review. So this will be a monthly supplement to the New England Journal of Medicine's Resident 360 Curbside Consult podcast series. Statistical Review will explore the different aspects of trial design, methodology and statistical analysis in studies published in NEJM. Our aim is to break down key methodological concepts to help broaden your knowledge and sharpen your skills in critically appraising the medical literature. As one of this year's NEJM editorial fellows, this has been one of the key learning curves I've experienced during my time so far at the journal. I'm Dr. Angela Chen. And I'm Dr. Angela Castellanos. Both of us are editorial fellows at the New England Journal of Medicine. If you tuned in to our last episode of Curbside Consults, we discussed the article, One Year Outcomes After PCI Strategies in Cardiogenic Shock by H. Thiele et al., which was published as an online first in the journal in August and in print in October. This was also known as the culprit shock trial. We talked about the outcomes, the relevance of this paper for the management of acute MI and cardiogenic shock with cardiologists and our guest, NEJM Deputy Editor, Dr. John Jarko. If you didn't have a chance to listen to this curbside consult with Dr. Jarko, that's no problem. We'll be summarizing the article while we review this topic. You can always find us on iTunes using NEJM Resident 360 by logging on to Resident 360 website or however you listen to podcasts to get the full story on the original NEJM article we discussed. With that, can you just give us a quick reminder, Angela, about the article? Yeah, of course. So Culprit Shock was a randomized control trial that evaluated primary composite outcome of death and renal replacement therapy use at 30 days in patients with acute myocardial infarction, cardiogenic shock, who had multivessel coronary artery disease. And these patients were randomized to either culprit lesion or multivessel PCI. So most recent paper presents follow-up results that were pre-specified secondary outcomes. These included mortality and recurrent myocardial infarction and need for repeat revascularization one year after the intervention. So the most recent paper is unusual in that it's a paper that only reports on pre-specified secondary outcomes with no p-value assigned to any of the outcomes reported in the entire paper. Usually, primary and secondary outcomes are reported in the same paper. So we should think of the original paper that reports on the primary outcome as part one and this follow-up paper that reports on secondary outcomes as part two. And as you've mentioned, what's particularly unusual about culprit shock, the follow-up, is the complete lack of p-value in the entire paper. I know when I read papers, I'm always looking for the p-value to see the significance. So in today's episode, we will be answering the question, why is there no p-value in an entire paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine? So Angela, if you could help us set up some of the background for this question. Yeah, of course. So first thing to remember, as I've already mentioned, is that Corporate Shock Part 2 is a paper that reports on pre-specified secondary outcomes as the original culprit shock paper that came out in the journal in December of last year had reported the primary outcomes. Primary and secondary outcomes measure different things in the study and therefore need to be interpreted quite differently. Okay, so what is the primary endpoint versus a secondary endpoint? Aren't these all just outcomes of the same trial? Yeah, absolutely. So the second part of this question is easier to answer. Yes, they are all outcomes of the trial, but there are differences in how these outcomes should be interpreted. So As our listeners may know, clinical trials are designed to answer a specific question. Is intervention A or intervention B the superior option for treating a condition to achieve an endpoint X? 
The primary endpoint is defined and measured to answer this specific question. So the primary endpoint is used to assess the possible treatment effect and give an answer as to whether an intervention is effective or not. So if we were going to use corporate shock as an example, the question would then be, in patients with acute myocardial infarction, cardiogenic shock and multivessel coronary artery disease, the primary outcome is a difference in the composite endpoint of death and renal replacement therapy at 30 days. And this is the difference between either corporate lesion PCI or multivessel PCI. So corporate shock was designed and powered to ask this primary question and measure the composite primary endpoint of either 30-day mortality or renal replacement therapy use. Okay, so I think I understand that the primary outcome we're looking at is the difference between culprit lesion PCI or multivessel PCI at 30 days. Absolutely, yeah. All right, so these studies are large. They involve lots of time and effort and several hundred thousand patients, staff, and additional resources. We do get the measurement for the primary outcome, but we also generate a significant amount of additional data, and this may address other questions that we have. So if we've designed this study, one that involves all these people, these patients, and all this money, to only adequately answer one question, what do we do with the rest of this data? Yeah, so the rest of this data then can be used to derive secondary endpoints. So secondary endpoints should ordinarily be pre-specified in the study protocol before the trial begins, but certainly there have been instances of secondary endpoints that are analysed in a post hoc kind of way. So there isn't any clear definition of what actually constitutes a secondary outcome, but they should be outcomes that can be reliably compared between the intervention groups and also have a meaningful clinical interpretation. The important thing to bear in mind with secondary outcomes are that there are two potential pitfalls. And the main one is that they may be underpowered because we remember the study is primarily powered to answer the question related to the primary outcome. So if the secondary outcome is then derived from underpowered data, the outcome may be non-informative. And if many secondary outcomes are actually examined, one or more may actually appear to be positive by chance alone. So then that gives rise to a falsely positive result. Okay. So what you're saying is that trials are designed before starting the study to answer a specific primary question. And this results in the primary endpoint. I think we got that. So this pre-planning minimizes bias and appropriately powers the study to answer this primary question. Secondary outcomes and endpoints are also results from the study, but we should interpret them with caution since the study may not have been powered to address these questions, and there may also be some bias in these results. Yeah, absolutely. So in contrast to the primary outcome, which tests study hypothesis and gives an answer to the defined question, secondary outcomes should be considered largely descriptive. Secondary outcomes can be used to give an indication of the precision and the accuracy of the primary outcomes. So if we go back to the initial question, why is there no p-value in the entire follow-up of the culprit shock paper? The precision and the accuracy of the results can be inferred from their point estimates and their confidence intervals. And point estimates and confidence intervals are used to describe the data rather than placing a specific statistical value which occurs as soon as we put a p-value onto something. Okay, so going back to culprit shock part two, the results after one year of follow-up were pre-specified secondary outcomes. But from what we've already learned, does that mean that the journal has published an entire study that's not powered or designed to answer these questions that it reports in this study? 
So that's a really important point to make. And the answer to that question is no. So the study was adequately powered for the primary outcome. Only the primary outcome was reported in the last paper. So in the follow-up paper, the data can only be used as descriptive data and the data can further support the primary outcome. And furthermore, the data can be used to generate future hypotheses. Okay. So you've mentioned a lot about confidence intervals and point estimates. It's been a little while since I've taken a statistics class. Can you remind me what those are and how they're useful in describing secondary outcomes? Yeah. So a point estimate is the single value that can be calculated from the data to measure the outcome. This is the best estimate of the true result. So in corporate shock part two, the pre-specified secondary outcomes are reported as relative risks and a single value then for relative risk is provided. A confidence interval then provides a plausible range of values for this parameter and gives an indication of the precision of this point estimate. Typically, a 95% confidence interval is used. This suggests that we are 95% certain that the true result lies within these values. Now, if the upper and lower limits of a 95% confidence interval are close together and the interval is narrow, we can be more confident regarding the precision of the results and that we've probably learned something new from the study. However, if the upper and lower limits of a 95 confidence interval is very wide, say 1 to 100, then that suggests the true result can lie anywhere between 1 to 100. And therefore, any result that we do get these findings may just be due to chance. So we've discussed the difference in what a primary outcome is compared with a secondary outcome and why they need to be interpreted differently. We've also learned that secondary outcomes are descriptive and hypothesis generating and discussed that point estimates and confidence intervals are a good way to describe this data. But can we answer the question for our listeners going back to the beginning? Why is there no p-value or use of the word statistically significant in the entirety of the culprit shock part two? Yeah, so that's a great question and essentially addresses how the journal has chosen to present secondary outcomes. I know previously when I was reading a paper, most of the time I would just try to jump straight to the p-value and try to infer what this means without actually looking at what the p-value was commenting on. Was it used to describe a primary or a secondary outcome? And I've never really thought about secondary outcomes as being descriptive. So at the journal, we're presenting secondary outcomes as point estimates with an associated 95% confidence interval, as it's better suited for descriptive findings of secondary outcomes rather than using a p-value. So in reviewing Culprit Shock Part 2, what have we learned from a statistical point of view today? Well, firstly, that a study is only designed and powered to answer one primary question, and that results in a primary outcome. We've also learned that secondary outcomes should be considered descriptive data and that there are potential pitfalls with secondary outcome when they are overinterpreted. Firstly, they're typically underpowered, or they can give a falsely inflated result and therefore a false positive. We've also learned that due to the descriptive nature of secondary endpoints, point estimates and accompanying confidence intervals are a better way to describe this data. So thank you for listening to today's episode of Curbside Consult's Statistical Review. A big thank you to Dr. Angela Castellanos, NAJM Editorial Fellow, for joining me in discussion today, and also to Dr. David Harrington, who's a statistical editor at NAJM, who has reviewed the contents of today's podcast. 
Our production team here at NHAM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Carl Simmons, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vinings, Scott Williams and Kathy Stern. Also special thank you to Dr. Amanda Fernandez, who's another co-editorial fellow at NEJM this year, and our NEJM education editor, Dr. O.P. Hammondvik. Because this is a new series and we're trying something new, we do want your feedback. So please email us at resident360 at nejm.org. Leave a message or review wherever you get your podcasts or feel free to reach out to us via NEJM Resident 360 website. We are also accessible via various social media sites, including Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook via the NEJM.org pages. I'm Dr. Angela Chen, Editorial Fellow at NEJM. Please join us again for our next episode.